Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. To start off, I'm going to read to you something from a column I posted on Forbes, and then we have a guest who will explain it all to us, hopefully. The, the column begins, as the Internet of Things, the vast interconnected computer-centered ecosystem of today reached a point where it is so complex, so multi-layered, has so many architects, and has so many national interests embedded in it that it has become a threat to itself. To answer that question, we have Robert Gardner, who is the founder and principal at New World Technologies and a national security agency consultant. But I might add that I've known Bob for some time, and he goes back in computer land the days when all the information that can now be put on this cell phone uh, was on something as big as a locomotive, and not all of it either. Bob, welcome to the broadcast. Uh, as I see it, the computers of the world, the largest man-made system ever conceived or created, are interconnected in such a way, overlaid, underlaid, that it is a gigantic, incredible house of cards with maybe trillions of cards in it, and nobody anymore can know what is happening in it. And if one card is removed or damaged or something happens, a whole stack comes tumbling down. That, that's uh, as we see it today as well. Um, th this first uh, occurred to us in 03, when uh, the Northeast power outage happened. Uh, frequently when I'm speaking, my audiences are from New York and they all nod their heads and tell me about walking across the uh, Brooklyn Bridge to go home and all of that. Uh, that was a massive event. Uh, spent, uh, I was with a, a group that was analyzing it on behalf of Homeland Security. We spent a year looking at the problem and the leader put together a, a very uh, comprehensive but frightening report about what actually happened to shut down the Northeast of the US and parts of Canada for a day and a half. And what happened was a tree in Ohio fell. The utility, which ran out of money, didn't pursue its foliage management. There was a storm, a tree fell, an outage happened. There were some meters out of calibration in the utility, but the frightening thing is everything else in the grid, all the systems of systems, all the different parts, the equipment, the processes, the people, and the interconnections worked precisely as they were designed to work. It was actually the complexity of the system that had been built over 50 or 60 years, hastily so, with everything from modern computers to read relays and paper tape readers and everything in between, and interconnections that really escaped documentation that was up to date. And, and that's what really took the house of cards down. Not long after that, we saw what was happening with the crashes that happened with the financial crash. Many of the problems were attributed to the mortgage industry and the subprime mortgages and the misbehavior of some of the players in there. However, it was exacerbated by a similar system that's called counterparty risk, where, as you recall, 
the banks would take a, a, uh, an instrument, a collateralized mortgage option, for instance, and slice it up into pieces and send it to 10 or 11 or 12 other banks to manage. And then they'd go to AIG to insure it in case something didn't, uh, didn't pan out uh, with the risk that they had hoped for. And AIG did the same thing. They would slice and dice the policies and give it to many people. And they called up Moody's and said, we need a good credit rating for this so that we can sell it. And Moody's did the same thing. And all of these players were international. They were global. They were in different places with different types of systems operating it, by the way, in different currencies. And that house of cards, which is called the counterparty network, behaved the same way that the grid behaved a few years earlier that took down the Northeast power. And the interesting thing is that there are mathematical models that fairly precisely can model the behavior of these things. And if you squint just a little bit, the math that models the power outage and the math that models a counterparty risk network going berserk look frighteningly the same. And that's what we're faced with, with a lot of the ecosystems, especially in industries where it's a multinational, usually regulated and, and highly visible system. When the cards begin to tumble, when this thing comes unstuck, and I'd like our viewers and listeners just to think about it for a minute, what would happen if the computer systems, plural, that they depend on, uh, came unstuck? Just how dreadful it would be. There'd be no electricity, there'd be no internet, there would be nothing that we associate with the orderly conduct of life. In fact, we would be in a very primitive situation and we wouldn't know what's going on which would make it worse because there'd be no communication uh, in that system uh, in this eventuality this possibility what can we do to defend against it and is anybody doing anything there are some remedies um chris inglis who's who's the president's uh, cyber leader uh calls this resilience by design. And resilience is a word that pops up a lot when people talk about cybersecurity. Um, but it, it's been mostly rhetoric and, and, and not actual What, what does it substance. mean? What does resilience well, mean? Resilience. Reliability, resilience, people say, no, no, resilience. Uh, let, let's talk about that, Chris. This is one of the most critical issues we're faced with. There are many pundits, uh, some who are world-renowned people from places that would astound you that have said for years and years, resilience is respond really, really fast and make everything redundant. Well, with the kind of complexity we have today and the fact that in the last 20 years, it's not just about computer science, it's really about computer science intermingled with process control. And so there are a lot of control loops that work at frightening speeds at the same time that there is processing going on in, in your transactions. And, and when you put all of these things together, first of all, you can't respond really, really fast because in a real-time world, by the time you figure out what to respond to, you blew up Cleveland. So responding fast doesn't work. The second part is when a system is so pervasive and so complex, 
And by complex, it's not just computers in the normal sense, or even process control systems, which have controllers and sensors, but, but there are signal processors, there are analog computers, there are giant supercomputers, there's little processors, there's even what you would call computers that are really just microchips. And in addition to that, there are many, many applications. In addition to that, there are many, many data types and many information types. When you roll all of this stuff together, the complexity is exacerbated by wanton uh, duplication of pieces. So putting together secondary systems, redundant systems adds to the complexity. And furthermore, the most vulnerable part of redundancy is not the backup system, but the little piece of computer or process equipment in the middle called redundancy management. That's the thing that senses that there is a need to do a backup and affects the backup. Now, adversaries know about that and that's the first thing they would attack. So take out the redundancy management and you've destroyed the redundancy capability. So redundancy, unless it's done very, very carefully, exacerbates the complexity and adds a new single point of failure. So the old version of resilience of respond fast and be redundant doesn't work. What resilience does mean, and, and I've often, and, and you'll remember this, used the, uh, the thriller in Manila, Muhammad Ali's Rope-A-Dope as, as kind of a, a way to describe it. We have to be able to take a hit for 11 rounds and still survive and still be there when the adversarial player runs out of steam and we're still standing. Resilience means when something happens, we contain it locally. We do not let it propagate system-wide. That's what resilience Bob, Bob, should mean. Are you describing the end of civilization as we have known it? When everything stops working, absolutely everything, we have no water, no gasoline, no light, no heat, no radio, no television. Uh, that is a pretty bleak place. And as we wouldn't know how long it was going to last, it would be a very terrifying place. Is that what you're going to, describing? And is it likely to happen? Uh, well, it's likely to be attempted. It has been attempted uh, in, in energy, in banking, in a number of other industries. Um, I, I don't think I can opine on what's the uh, global consequence. Um, I don't know. Uh, how pervasive it would be in terms of civilization itself, but I do know that large national and in some cases international systems would come to a screeching halt. For the most part, we do know how to rebuild things quickly. So I, I think that the devastation would be short-lived. Nevertheless, it would be devastation. It would put fear in the, in the minds and hearts of citizens. But beyond that, in some of these industries, as, as you realize, the national security infrastructure of the country looks at energy and the economics behind banking, uh, as well as healthcare and communications as part of what assures our national security. So it has a national security impact as well as a, a citizen's uh, capability impact. 
So the impact would be large. It would cause a lot of problems. I do believe, and we have seen in so many different ways, and I think we're seeing a little bit of this, in fact, in Ukraine, that we do have the ability to rebuild or to re-energize fairly quickly. But that's not to take away from the fact that there will be some devastation. However, if and when, and there are techniques to do this, we can create this resilience by design whereby we can adjust and tweak the IT architectures so that when an attack comes, it could be contained locally and not have unfettered propagation across the ecosystem. Are we doing that? Are we taking these uh, defensive measures or are we waiting for disaster as we so often do? Um, I'm afraid most of us are waiting for disaster. However, the interesting thing is uh, there are things that can be done to protect the ecosystem and to, and to parse it into many defensible localities so that an attack won't propagate. However, in order to know where to do that and how to do that and how to reconnect them, there needs to be a very careful mathematical system engineering approach to analyzing the system so that you can inform people where to make the adjustments. Such capability to do that is 75 years old. Actually, it's part of the system engineering protocols that Bell Labs developed during the war. It used to be called, and it still is called, failure modes, effects, and criticality analysis. So there exist ways to analyze and mathematically model systems. In fact, there are three or four laboratories that I've worked with that do that today that can give you the precise mathematical behavior of these complex systems. And from knowing that, you can determine how to slowly readjust the ecosystem with ways to have localities that can contain an attack. Uh, should we believe you? Are you a crank? Uh, do a <laughs> lot of people agree with you? Are you a lone voice in the wilderness or are you part of established thinking in the computer industry? Uh, I'm, I'm part of established thinking in terms of system engineering and mathematics. That's been around for a long time. There are labs doing it today, very well known and credentialed labs that, that can do this. And there have been some attempts to try and start this, but it's a very difficult thing to do the first time. It's a very expensive thing to do the first time. Once you do it, it can be managed properly and economically uh, and responsibly, but taking something as big and complicated and old as some of these systems are is financially and politically very difficult to convince people to pursue. So I think it has more about the decision process than the actual technology. Bob, I have said often that if you have a system that is too complex, a problem that is too complex, you can't and cannot solve it. You then need a simple solution because there is no complex solution that can deal with the complexity. And I would point out as a rather primitive illustration of that, if all your teeth are bad, it's probably easier and simple to go to the simple solution, which is dentures, 
rather than try to repair every tooth in your mouth and the gums in which they are a city. Uh, how do we look at computer, this whole computer built on top of each other, one on top of the other into a great edifice? Can it all be put aside and start again with a clean slate? Uh, well, of course it technically can, but I think pr practically it cannot. Nobody is going to uh, advocate uh, throwing out the internet and starting all over again, or throwing out the grid and starting all over again, or throwing out SWIFT and starting all over again. However, that's not necessarily the, the best way to go anyway. We can make adjustments to start to limit the kind of unfettered propagation of consequences that's necessary. Remember, the other thing that's important, and, and this goes back to another thing that has happened in the last 20 years in cyberspace. Uh, let me take a little left turn for a moment. One of the things that's, that, that began around the turn of, of this century is the recognition that cyber risk is not a technical problem, it's a risk management problem. Beyond that, it is an enterprise risk management problem. And what that tells us is that the important thing to protect aren't the bits and bytes, but the consequences to the ultimate stakeholders. So for instance, it, the mission of providing power or the mission of, of the uh, share value of an enterprise is more important as a driver of what you do than the detail of the bits and bytes that might be problematic inside the data center. Well, let's get this down to ordinary men and women in the street or working in their companies. There is nothing that we as individuals can do to affect this vulnerability at our doorstep. Is that what you're telling me? Uh, no, this is the, the kind of systemic risk that we're talking about is, is such that no, there's nothing individuals can do about it. Enterprises can, and some of the oversight uh, organizations and government can help. Let me, so let me, let me pursue done. this a little further. Uh, uh, we are conditioned to believe that the threats to all of our internet services, and there are many, come from uh, bad actors, either governments or, or just uh, crazy hackers. That, but that you're not saying that. You're saying the risk is within the system itself, that it can have a kind of uh, automatic um, uh, conflagration. That it... it's, it's both. It, it is both. There are things in the system that are sort of hair trigger events waiting to happen that could start this propagation as it did in, in the uh, Ohio utility in 03. However, there are also adversaries that are now much smarter. We educate many of them, much better funded, much more voted, motivated, who know about that as well. So they know where to put the finger that will start this propagation to happen. So most of it won't be self-combusting, although some of it can, but a lot of it is so hair trigger ready to explode that a really smart adversary can start the process going. This sounds remarkably like the theory of chaos where 
the fluttering of a butterfly in, in Central America can affect the weather in North America. Uh, that rather elaborate, but possibly real concept of interrelationship. Now we could have some small thing. Uh, your local hardware store could possibly in some way uh, do something to the net that would start this, this conflagration. It has those characteristics, that's true. And, and when you think about the, the geopolitical underpinning of all of this, uh, as with the supply chain, the supply chain not only threatens the delivery of goods and services that are needed, but also threatens the integrity of the computer parts that are transported, as well as uh, the, the confidentiality of that. So the supply chain, which has made the geopolitical underpinnings of cyberspace even more vulnerable, uh, has added to it. And when some of the real high-speed 5G is implemented, it will not only have added complexity, but it will have added lightning speed so that if and when something goes awry, the consequence will propagate very, very quickly so the ability to respond goes away. Bob, let's talk 5G. Uh, it's greatly hyped, but in fact, it comes in, in, in three stages, doesn't it? And we're only yes. tinkering with stage one. And then there's stage two, which is much faster and more enveloping. And then there is stage three, which is super speeds. No way you can stop anything once initiated. Uh, would that be a correct analysis or correct? Yes, yes, indeed it would. The current 5G, most people will see it on their, their smartphones. Uh, they'll see the 5G logo pop up and, and scratch their heads and say, well, wait a minute, it's behaving the same way it did last year. It is faster, but it's not that noticeably faster. When it goes to stage three, it's called the low latency stage, and it's being developed specifically for usage, not necessarily by individuals, but industries that need to do things at that really unusually fast pace. For instance, if and when self-driving automobiles are really a thing, to be able before you turn the corner to the next, uh, you know, make, make a right turn into the next street, you can't wait for a signal to go up to the cloud and back down to know if somebody's coming. You have to know as you're turning that somebody's coming. It's that kind of speed that's necessary that's created the need for that kind of 5G speed. When that happens, the speed of transactions and of information is not only unusually fast, but when it, a, a breach happens, the consequence speeds that fast as well. We are in a very political time. Politics is very dominant uh, in our lives. We can't get away from political discussion and we're not sure about political directions. Does the political world understand in any way at all the computer world and this great alternative system of everything that the internet of things represents? Well, my view on that is, is, is interesting. Uh, there is a, at least a three-tiered Tower of Babel around the computer world. There are the computer professionals who live on one level. There are the businesses 
not the business that deals with the computers, but the boardrooms, which are on another level. And yet there is the ecosystem and the political and the national part at yet a third level. And they don't have a common lingua franca. They can't talk to one another. They don't understand one another, which is one of the biggest impediments to making some of the changes that are needed to happen more quickly. So I, I think that it's, it's the problem, not of the raw technology itself, but the problem of the different parts of this Tower of Babel that can't get together to put their arms around a way to solve it. It is solvable. It takes the will to do it, to solve it. Well, uh, what can you as an individual do to solve it besides coming on programs like this and writing and being written? <laughs> well, uh, is there a, is there a, you know, when, when there was an excess of uh, plutonium in the atmosphere, the nuclear scientists of the world got together and said, stop this testing of nuclear weapons. You're doing damage. Are we going to get to a point where computer scientists are going to get there and stop building this monster? Let's get it under our control. Well, that, that, that raises yet another issue that's important. This is not a problem just for computer scientists. Even the technical part is now a problem for system engineers in addition to computer scientists. Now, we know we don't have enough computer scientists for cybersecurity, but we have even fewer system engineers because this is a quote unquote complex system problem that needs a different discipline that comes from system engineering. It's a different mathematical discipline and a different way of looking at things. So we, we need to have a different kind of a workforce behind it. Once we have that, we still need to have a way to convince the, the enterprises and, and the countries uh, that have the oversight and the agencies uh, that are controlling them to start to make the adjustments at a much faster clip. Now, it is entirely possible to do more faster. Uh, what individuals are doing, there are quite a number of research projects that are doing a lot for the mathematical and very specific analysis of what goes on in cyberspace, which informs ways to slowly re-architect the ecosystem so it can be resilient, quote unquote, resilient by design. So it is inherently able to not stop attacks, but contain and absorb attacks without disaster. That's happening in the technical world, in the research world today. It's been happening over time, but it's really intense right now. Bob, we are out of time. I, <clears throat> I thank you for coming on the broadcast and telling us about this Frankenstein that we've created, which is very disturbing and which can come down like this necktie, if I pull it correctly, uh, collapse all about us. Uh, thank you so much. And Good luck with uh, your attempts to tell the world that the computer is not necessarily benign. Cheers. Our program, White House Chronicle, is on offer as a podcast for you to enjoy. Full shows on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and all major audio platforms. 
subscribe and take us with you in your pocket.